we'd never talk about term limits again because we would restore the reach of accountability to the voters where it rightly belongs. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for A Divided Union, Structural Challenges to Bipartisanship in America. This program is named after a book with the same name, and today we're joined by the two authors of the book, both former U.S. representatives, Representative Patrick Murphy and Representative David Jolly. Since this event just took place recently over Zoom, Liz's introduction of the program requires no additional context from me. So here's Village Square's CEO and founder, Liz Joyner, to introduce our guests and the program. Good evening, everyone. My name is Liz Joyner. I'm the founder and CEO of the Village Square. It's my pleasure to welcome you to our second digital dinner at the Square in our series, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America. A Divided Union, Structural Challenges to Bipartisanship in America. And that just so happens to be the exact title of the recently released book written by our special guest this evening. Um, And I just happen to have it right here with me. Under normal circumstances, we'd be sharing a meal with all of you, and we can't wait to do that again. On the upside, though, our, our digital format means we've got people joining us from all over the state and all over the country. So welcome. We're glad for you to be a part of this. Our deepest and most profound gratitude to our seasoned sponsors, the heroes playing a critical role in the health of our democracy over at the Tallahassee Democrat. We'd also like to thank Florida Humanities, our partner in presenting this program tonight. If you don't know about the work of Florida Humanities, then you need to take a moment to visit them at floridahumanities.org. They support programs like this across the entire state of Florida, and they are extremely cool and you'll want to hang out with them. We had the pleasure of being a part of bringing Representative Jolly and Representative Murphy to campuses as different as Berkeley and BYU as a part of a nationwide tour they've done to spread the message of how we can better work together for the common good. It is now my pleasure to, without further ado, introduce tonight's moderator. Dr. Carol Weissert is the director of the Leroy Collins Institute and the Leroy Collins eminent scholar, chair, and professor of political science at Florida State University. Her research focuses on federalism and intergovernmental issues in state policy, particularly health policy. She has published over four dozen books in political science and public policy journals as the author or co-author of four recent books, including Governing Health, The Politics of Health Policy, 
the fourth edition of which was published um, by Johns Hopkins University Press. Dr. Weissert. Thank you so much, Liz. It's delightful to be with you today, and it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers tonight. They're two very special people who are of different political parties and yet still talk and listen to each other. They're both Floridians and both were members of Congress who saw firsthand the partisanship, lived through the legislative gridlock, and experienced what some feel is the overweening power of campaign donations. David Jolly represented Pinellas County in the U.S. House from 2014 to 2017. Today, he serves as Executive Vice President of Shoemaker Advisors Florida, and many of you may have seen him as a political analyst for the networks and media platforms of NBC. He is an attorney and a fierce advocate for campaign finance. He was a Republican, but he became an independent in September 2018, and he is said to be considering a run for Florida governor in 2022 as an independent. Patrick Murphy represented Florida's Treasure Coast in North Palm Beach County from 2013 to 2017. While in Congress, he formed the Bipartisan United Solutions Caucus, bringing together members of both parties to explore ways to get the nation's fiscal house in order. He is the chair of the Future Forum Foundation, a nonprofit group working to address economic issues facing millennials. He's also executive vice president of Coastal Construction and a senior fellow at FIU's School of International and Public Affairs. He is a Democrat. So before we get into the sort of the, the uh, nuts and bolts of what we're going to do about this divided nation, I wanted to give Representative Jolly and Representative Murphy a, a chance to really talk about how they got together in this path and how they developed this real partnership that sent them across the country making these speeches and co-writing this book on what we do about a divided union. So Representative Mur Murphy, do you want to start on that one? Yes. Great. Thank you for the great introduction, uh, and thank you all for uh, being on this evening. And uh, I look forward to getting to all the, the questions in the, in the Q and A section here. Dave and I uh, went to Congress both with the same intention, and that was to help Floridians. And we got to DC and had our own sort of unique stories about leadership and our respective parties pulling us to basically the extremes and to not work together. And I had several bills that I put forward that I thought were sort of no-brainer, obvious bills uh, to get our fiscal house in order. And was, was told time after time that Republicans wouldn't work with me because they didn't want to give me an opportunity to campaign and perhaps win my reelection again. David had the same experience where Democrats wouldn't work with him. And Dave and I had a chance to start working together on some issues that affected Florida specifically, some environmental issues and some other topics. And we realized that we really weren't that far apart. We actually got along pretty well. And it was leadership and, and the structure that was really incentivizing this polarized behavior. So when Dave and I both lost our elections in 2016, we did an interview together and we were talking about, you know, what's wrong with D.C. And someone sort of asked us, you know, about the people and this would be such bad people up there. We got to get rid of them all and, and all that. And we kind of came to the same conclusion that, yeah, there's some bad apples up there, but it's really not all their fault. It's the in incentive structure in which we operate in Washington, D.C. And unless we fix these fundamental foundational problems of Washington and politics at large, 
We're never going to get it right. We're never going to have a, a, a government that works together. So we started talking about the issues that, again, we agreed on, like gerrymandered districts, uh, like the money in politics, like like the media and the, the extremism there, the lack of relationships in D.C. and the cameras in the committee rooms, right? And all these sort of nuanced issues and some big picture issues that we said all work together. And unless you fix those, you're really never going to have a government that works together. So we sort of set off on this uh, same mission. It didn't start as that. It just became that. But we've spoken, I think, like 35, 40 universities and schools, uh, FSU being one of those across the country, talking about these problems. And now I uh, wrote this, this textbook called A Divided Union, talking about these problems and offering some potential solutions to it. So that's kind of where we were and, and how we got to this place. So look forward to diving into some of these issues a little bit more. Thank you. Representative Jolly, can you hear us? Okay, we will uh, we'll just continue on and uh, he will join us when, when, when he gets in. You mentioned that, Representative Murphy, you came to FSU. Actually, it was three years ago next week that there was a Village Square FSU event the three of us were at, and uh, you, you two talked about gridlock and possible solutions. So, so things were bad then, but so much has happened in the past three years. It almost makes those times look, look like they were the good old days. So first, a, a broad, easy question. Is there any chance in this post-Trump political world for bipartisanship? Looks like we got David, so I'll kick it to him, and then I'll, I'll jump in maybe after. <laughs> All right. Glad you could join us, Jolly. Is there any chance in this world that we live in today for bipartisanship? There is. And look, I, I've been enjoying the audio thus far. I'd be happy to listen to, to you and Patrick, Carol. Thank you for having us and to Village Square, Tallahassee Democrat, Florida Humanities, to everybody who's spending some time with us tonight. The answer is yes. You know, part of what Patrick and I have zeroed in on, and it seems so quaint almost in the the years, we'll call them the pre-Trump years before the, the real divisiveness of the last four years, but the incentive structure that Patrick spoke about has real consequences. And sometimes we talk about democracy reform, election reform, and, and it doesn't really evoke the same passions that perhaps the hard ideological issues do and the partisan fights. But the reality is the way our democracy is set up it does incentivize this hyper-partisanship and this divisiveness. Patrick and I are up today with an op-ed on Smirconish.com uh, Smir together with the president of the Open Primaries Organization, specifically showing how, in the case of closed primaries, how that one election tool has been used in the events leading into January 6th and since to try to... to inflict discipline and close ranks within the Republican Party. And it's not an easy issue to talk about, you know, the events of January 6th, but consider prior to the vote of the House whether to certify the Electoral College, Donald Trump and his family very specifically said, if you're not with us, we're going to primary you. The reason that was a powerful statement is because most states have closed primaries where elected members have to go home only to their most partisan voters to be held accountable. And I say that because to your question of, is some type of unity or bipartisanship possible? Yes, part of what we have to do is level the playing field within our election systems themselves, create more competitive elections where members have the opportunity to be affirmed or voted out by a more politically diverse constituency and not be kind of subject to the safe harbor of only your partisan voters. 
the end of the day, you know, there are certain moral decisions and leadership decisions that any elected official makes. You either, you try to break through the noise and lead us in, in a, a more inclusive, more moral direction as a nation, I suppose, politically speaking, or you decide to seek comfort in the divisiveness that has rewarded you with the office thus far. I believe in both the spirit of many of our elected officials that within the right framework, they will behave in a way that brings us all together. But I also believe that the fundamental work on election reform and democracy reform has to be accomplished in areas of gerrymandering reform, primary reform, campaign finance reform, and so forth. Those are tough issues. Representative Murphy. I'll jump in and, you know, obviously, uh, we agree on this stuff or we wouldn't have written a book together on it. So that's right. And an effort not to repeat what, you know, what David said, I'll mention uh, and note that, that there are some macro overarching issues that are important to, to consider here for your question, Carol, because we are in the middle of what my opinion is, is an industrial revolution, right? This technological revolution. We are going through major changes in our economy. There's a tremendous amount of disruption. There's a tremendous amount uh, of, of separation uh, in our economies and in the world. And we're, we're exposed to more information than we ever have in history. And, you know, historically, when that happens, it leads to some, you know, pretty tough events, wars and depressions and recessions. And, and unfortunately, I think we're living kind of in the middle of those times right now, thanks to social media and technology and, you know, cell phones and Zooms that we're all becoming so accustomed to. And while there's some benefits to that, uh, it, it can lead to, to some tough times for an economy. So I think that's sort of the, some overarching issues that, that we have to consider Consider with why we're not getting along so well, because people are uneasy, right? There's more income inequality than pretty much ever in our history right now, right? That leads to unease in a society. Then you add in these structural problems that David was just, you know, talking about there. And you, you take one in particular, gerrymandering. Now, all these issues work together, but just start with the gerrymandering. 90% of congressional districts are predetermined to be either Republican or Democratic, right? So if you're in one of the you know, 90% of these seats, the only election that matters is the primary, right? So say you're in a safe Democratic seat in you know, Broward County, Florida, and it's always going to be a Democratic seat. The general election doesn't really matter. What you have to do is win a primary. So how do you win a primary? You appeal to the primary voters, and that's around 12% of any congressional districts. You're talking like 30, 35,000 people that you've got to uh, you know, appeal to. David, myself, anybody that runs a campaign knows exactly how to find those voters, right? That the mail they read, the websites they go to, the issues they care about, and you can target each and every one of them with a specific issue. So you do what it takes to win that primary. And guess what? Most of those people are typically more to the left or more to the right, more extreme. So 12% of the country is determining 90% of the members of Congress. So the only threat that these people have is from the far left or for the far right. So when you look at the behavior of members of Congress, just remember 90% of them aren't looking to get to the middle to solve a problem. They're looking over their left or right shoulder, worried about a primary and, and what that threat could mean. What about the fact that Florida turned down the top two primary in November? That would have really opened up the whole system, right, in the ways that you guys wanted. It got over 50%, but not over the 60% margin we need. Is that Now, we, we tried in Florida and we failed. 
Go ahead, David. Carol, I, w- I would say the fact that we got to 57% is significant, right? A majority of Floridians on an issue that is not really well understood, to be honest, a, a majority of Floridians said, yes, we want to go in that way. They saw that it was an opportunity to disrupt the, the hyperpartisanship. And, you know, open primaries is a, it's an interesting conversation for an event like this, but in terms of democracy reform, because closed primaries have a very defensible position, right? If it is our party, we should decide who our candidates are. And frankly, the federal courts have said largely that's true. But when you begin to peel back those arguments, if that is the case, if, if a primary is the exclusive function of a party, well, then why do all Florida taxpayers publicly fund an election in 67 counties for what's an exclusive partisan activity? If, if the Republican Party of Florida and Democratic Party of Florida want to close out their primary process, fine. Then go have a party convention or run your own elections and pay for it yourself in 67 counties. But if we are going to ask all taxpayers to, to financially provide this platform for primary elections, then why should independent voters like myself in Florida be forced to associate with one of the two major parties simply to exercise my franchise to vote? And and those are the legal arguments, you know, both for and against. But I would also say, and this is a personal judgment of mine, after decades involved in politics, I just think closed primary gerrymandered systems have contributed so greatly to where we are right now that we've got to blow it all up. Let's open primaries and let's create independent redistricting commissions that focus on the electoral competitiveness of our maps, which might require some squiggly lines, but let's make as many districts as electorally competitive as possible. You want to talk about behavioral changes of our elected officials if they had to run in open primaries and then face politically competitive general elections every two years or four years, we'd never talk about term limits again because we would restore the reach of accountability to the voters where it rightly belongs. And, and Carol, something that you know we certainly agree on and, and talk about a lot is starting with just a fair playing field, right? And that means drawing the districts in, in a more fair manner. There have been some attempts with having independent panels uh, or boards, commissions in some states do this. Some are moving, moving toward like an algorithm to look at the, the political break, the partisan breakdown and have the, a computer generated district. Um, you know, trying to get it away from the elected officials that are incentivized to draw partisan districts. Starting with that and then going on, you know, toward what, you know, David was saying there with open primaries, with the top two system, a ranked choice system. And one of the interesting things happening right now in our country uh, is democracy at work, right? The, the states are, are sort of petri dishes, are, are trying different things out. And we're living through that right now. And as we move forward the next couple of years, as redistricting happens after the census that we just you know, took, we're going to start to see this play out. We're going to see court cases. We're going to see all sorts of challenges. So, uh, you know, this is going to be live TV. That's critical for our democracy, quite frankly. It is too bad it's become so partisan. You know, it's been partisan since it got the name gerrymandering, right? Back in what, the 1800s. So it's been around for a long time. The only difference I'd add is the technology is there. We're not just taking, you know, like a city and putting it somewhere. You're going household to household in the click of a button with an algorithm drawing these seats in such a precise manner that, you know, it's really just gamesmanship at this point. 
I thought one of the ironies about the top two primaries was that, uh, that it joined both the Democratic and Republican parties in Florida were against it. <laughs> so they joined together to be against that the thing. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I, I agree that the 57 percent was impressive, but it would sure have been nicer from your point of view if it had been 60 or uh, 61. Right. I have another question that before we're going to turn over to the audience questions, too. But I wanted your your idea on this. One, one of the things that I think is worse today than it was like three years ago. Ago is, is the divide among non-elected partisans, not necessarily people who run in these primaries, but just the rest of us. One pollster was quoted in a Washington Post article as saying he couldn't remember a time when there were fewer points of intersection or overlap between two sides of the political divide. And you've probably seen some of these poll numbers. There was a Pew Research poll in October before the election found that 80% of Biden supporters and 77% of Trump supporters said they fundamentally disagree with the other side on core American values and goals. So how can we talk about about primaries when it's it's not it's not just people running but it's the people electing those. Well how are we going to get this country less partisan among the citizenry? That's an easy question, right? <laughs> Patrick, I'll take that. Yeah, so I'll take that initially, and I'll, I'll offer you another stat. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get it 90% right, but it's from Gallup about a year ago, and they studied trends going back 50 years. And 50 years ago, they asked if if your son or daughter married a member of another race, would you be supportive? And only say 20% said yes, and today 80% say yes. They asked the same question about a same-sex marriage, and 50 years ago, only 20% said yes, and now 80% say yes. They asked a question, would you be supportive if your son or daughter married somebody of the opposite political party? 50 years ago, 80% said yes, and today only 20% say yes. It's going in exactly the opposite direction of these other cultural narratives. And I would say there's a little give and take here between the electeds and the voters. And what I mean by that is this. We have seen these hyperpartisan reward mechanisms come into place that we've talked about. We've also seen the emergence because we live in a world of free media and free press of a for-profit model of media platforms that isolate where you get your news, the type of news you get, the perspective you get, and we each suffer from the confirmation bias of watching the news that we agree with. And so that's another piece that's, that's pushed us apart. But where it meets the elected is this. All of that has led us to then elect members of the legislature or an executive branch that reflect that hyperpartisanship within our country and our community. Part of what Patrick and I are talking about is creating greater competition where, where the voices of consensus and the voices of cross-partisanship are rewarded with the opportunity to serve. And how that impacts us culturally then is if we see voices of consensus emerge and be successful and become leaders, right? Patrick and I a couple of years ago considered a unity ticket as a Democrat and a Republican running for governor together as a unity ticket. And we saw all of the, the hurdles right in front of us to trying to do that. But imagine an election system where that was a viable ticket and succeeded. Now, culturally within our, our political culture as voters, we're seeing different models of behavior than what we're seeing today. And look, again, going back to 
there are mechanics to political behavior. And then some of it is just, we each make moral decisions about our own behavior and leadership. That's true for the elected and for the voters. But I do think voters today continue to see in their representatives models of hyper-partisanship and not models of cross-partisanship. And if we can change that, I think it'll be a positive influence on our body politic. Carol, I'll just add to that. This is really speaks to chapter two and three in our book, talking about money and, and influence of media. Uh, and they're both very connected, I think, to your question. You know, I would, I would really like to dive into those numbers you quoted, Carol, because I believe if more neighbors got together from opposing parties that had claimed that they, you know, disavow or disagree with 80% of the other party's values. If they really got to sit down and go to dinner and understand these people, that number would be significantly lower. We're being manipulated by the media, and I'm just not just saying Fox or CNN or something, but uh, social media and and uh, so many of these, you know, conspiracy theory type websites, whether it's on the left or the right, but take a QAnon, for example, uh, that has thousands, I don't know, millions of, of followers at this point, who are telling people that Democrats are drinking children's blood or, or pedophiles or whatever, like crazy thing they're saying right now. And... They believe it. Like they literally are believing. We have a member of Congress right now that believes these these wacky things. And and you got to just think about the media that's dividing us so intentionally. And that's where I insert the money piece to this, because like so many things in life, follow the money. If people can find a way to make money on dividing our country, then so be it. They're going to do it. And if you can continue to target and grow your list of followers on social media or some website and then get some advertising dollars, then so be it. They're going to do it. They don't really care about the consequences. And by that same token, when you're running for office and you want to get elected and you realize that you've got a limited amount of money to spend, how are you going to get you know, the most effective use of that money and get votes? Oftentimes, that means negative campaigning. That usually works better than saying something positive about yourself. So what do you do? You end up saying, or your campaign people, and who come with some pretty nasty ads about your opponent that are usually stretching the truth uh, and saying some oftentimes uh, unfair things. People then start believing that. And so we've now built up these walls about what the other party really believes in and what they stand for, because oftentimes they've been fed a bag of lies. So, you know, digging into these sort of structural problems uh, that Dave and I have tried to point out, try to pull back the curtain on a little bit the psychology, but what's really motivating so many of these decisions. Yes, but going to David's point, you know, I I like the idea of models, new models, but given the fact that there's so much money in the system, how do you, how are these new models going to come forward, do you think? David, you want to jump in there? You're saying models for... Yeah, you you said, you know, that when citizens see these new models of of congressional members who aren't so craven, but how are they going to be elected? So you hit on a very important point, Carol, which, look, I'm, I'm very involved in the, the independent political movement, the new party movement. In fact, I, I'm the head of a, a new party called the Serve America Movement, the SAM party. We're in some states, but, but not all. And, and the challenges are very real. And part of it is the money behind the two major parties is very significant. But what I will tell you, it, through living through this independent party and independent political movement, 
there is an appetite among the American people to try to take change into their own hands. When you talked about the open primary ballot initiative in Florida, that wasn't initiated by the parties. That was initiated by the signatures of Floridians and the financial donations of Floridians to help support it. So there is money there and there is there is grassroots support there. When we see ranked choice voting in Maine, when we see independent district commissions in the state of Arizona, all of those are citizen-led. They're not led by the, the legislatures controlled by the two major parties. So we have the, the heartbeat of the movement, of the reform movement, if you will. What we are missing are the wins on the scoreboard. You know, you can look at ranked choice voting in Maine. You can look, Alaska just passed four incredible initiatives from ranked choice voting to open primaries to campaign finance transparency. You can look at California, Arizona, these other states and say, we're putting some points on the board. But I think to truly inject confidence into, into a wide swath of the American people who want to see change, we need independent candidates to win, and we need more wins on the board from the independent movement in states across the country. Great. Okay. Um, one of the questions that was asked was about ranked choice voting and, and its possibilities. And I think it's, you know, it seems to be working pretty well in Maine. And as you said, other states have looked at that. There's a question about third party. And the question really asked, do you think that in this closely divided country, a third party focused not on the presidency, but in gaining small but meaningful presence in the House and Senate, maybe even state legislatures, uh, might be a moderating influence and force more bipartisanship? Is this even possible? I'm sure there's just something David wants to talk about. So I don't want to, you know, sort of steal any thunder here. But again, looking at it from what's happening, you know, right now in our country, the Republican Party is clearly fractured, right? You see it just playing out today, right? Uh, and yesterday with Liz Cheney and Congresswoman Green, and you're seeing the sort of pro Trump Republican Party than the more, you know, sort of historical Republican Party, a bit more moderate. And on the Democratic side, you can argue you're seeing a fractured party there with a more progressive brand with you know AOC, Bernie Sanders, et cetera, and then a more moderate pro-business Democratic party. There's an argument to be made that there's a middle lane there that could kind of steal from both moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats, and get to a majority right now. Because the two extremes aren't like, you know, two or 5% of each party. They're becoming a much bigger piece of it. And I know it's anecdotal, but I've certainly had a lot of conversations with people on both sides of the aisle that are very upset uh, with their parties, very upset with the direction of the country and looking for another alternative. So this could just be the moment uh, where that third party does start to get traction, whether it's in the House, the Senate, state legislature, whatever. And I think that would be the foundation for a, a bigger movement. Carol, if I could jump in here, because there's there's so so many complexities to this, uh, we we really don't have time for them. But I I want to touch on a couple in terms of the question that came in. There there has been some groups. Unite America was one who tried to pursue exactly that fulcrum strategy in the U.S. Senate. That if they could if they could capture five to six seats for independents, for moderates. They could control the balance of the power because they'd have a large enough caucus to kind of control majority votes in the United States Senate. They got very specific and targeted low-cost states, right? There's only so much, so many financial resources to support independent runs. So they looked at Iowa and Nebraska, Alaska, and so forth. And they ran on this moderate platform it ended up not working. They they didn't win any seats, at which goes to only the second complexity of this I want to highlight because it's it's such an important one. There's a theory of the case that somehow a moderate ideology, 
and a coalition of moderates is what would break up the partisan gridlock. I don't think that's the case. I take a, a totally different approach. I think what people want when they want a break to in the, in the gridlock is they just want a government that works. It's not an ideologically based concern. Yes, they have heartburn over the far right and far left, but the greatest heartburn is they look at government at all levels and say, why aren't politicians just solving the problems we face? Immigration, healthcare, taxes, and regulation. And so where I've gotten involved in the independent political movement is in rejecting the left-right spectrum as the only approach to politics. And instead suggesting, what if we had a big tent platform that welcomed all ideologies, left, right, and center, bring it, whatever it is, whatever your political, personal ideology is, bring that to the conversation. And what if we built a coalition around the shared values, arguably the foundational values upon which our nation was founded, but the shared values of problem solving, consensus, transparency, accountability, democracy protection, rather than approaching politics on the left-right spectrum, what if we approached it on a spectrum of value-driven priorities? And in that case, imagine what it unleashes for policy. Right now, you could talk about investing more in public schools, but also talking about parental choice. For guns, you could talk about protecting the Second Amendment through greater regulation. On immigration, you could talk about border security and providing legal status to those who are here without it right now. You can talk about those issues on a platform where you're not tethered to the left-right spectrum because all of a sudden the priority is actually solving the policy problems we face. Where the political movement has failed, the independent political movement has failed in the past. I don't think it's around resources, strategies, candidates. I think it's around being tethered to somehow being a moderate ideology is the salve to all this. I don't think it's an ideological solution that's going to that's going to fix this. I think it's a radically different spectrum solution. Interesting. Well, there was a question about the top two primary that we were talking about. Questioner wonders if you would address the fact that the top two election in Florida suppresses black and brown vote from electing a representative to higher political office. Yeah, Patrick, you mind if I take that just very quickly? I, I would encourage the person who posed the question to look at the data provided by open primaries. It's a nonprofit organization, obviously, that advocates for, for open primaries. And what we have seen is that in states where you have an open primary and ranked choice voting system, there is greater inclusion of diversity, both demographically, racially, and politically in state legislatures that have adopted top two systems, and that there is not the disenfranchisement that we've seen. And in fact, among the disenfranchisement argument, and you saw this from, from many people in Florida during the open primary debate, of the 3 million plus no party uh, affiliated voters in Florida, about 1.2 million, I believe, are voters of color who you could argue are disenfranchised from the primary system today. So I think it's an important conversation because it's important that we get it absolutely right. We cannot have a disparate impact through any of these democracy reform efforts on communities of color or voters of color. But the data from studies in states that have adopted these reform initiatives continues to prove out that diversity of representation increases, not decreases in states that have adopted these reforms. 
Another question about the top two primary. I voted against the top two primary because I felt that with extreme gerrymandering present, the top two would almost always be of the same party, leaving a false choice for the general election. How could this be avoided? So you'll have top two that might mean two Republicans in many of the congressional districts in Florida. I'm certainly in the camp of, of starting off with the more fair lines. <laughs> Let's get that right. Uh, that starts to solve some of the problems. But if you can combine the two, the intent, obviously, is yes, while it might be still a Republican, if two Republicans say make it on and they're the top two candidates, that the more moderate Republican could theoretically get some traction with more moderate voters, maybe they're independent, maybe they're Democratic, et cetera. And if the Democrats are, in fact, going to you know, still show up and vote, which you hope they do in the June election, they'll pick the more moderate one. And there's an inkling incentive to get back toward the middle. So while it might not be perfect if, you know, say, a Democrat asked that question, if that's what they're getting at, at least you're going to have people willing to work together. And you're going to have members of Congress that won't be scared to say, hey, I'm Patrick Murphy, a Democrat. And damn right, I worked with you know Republican David Jolly on an issue and go back to their district and brag about it. Because right now it's the opposite. You're disincentivized to actually work with someone from the other party. So in that top two system, you're not scared to do that. And you probably brag about it, actually. If I could add something to that, I think it's important to ask the question, do we hold elections to try to select the person that best represents our community? Or do we hold elections to set up a platform where two major parties get to contest each other and voters are given a choice between the two? I would suggest the answer is the former, that we hold elections to try to identify the person that best represents the community. And I understand the gerrymandering question as it relates to House legislative districts, but if you look at the state of California and take a Senate election where gerrymandering does not apply, we see two Democrats typically always emerge in a runoff contest because California is a deep blue state. And I would say that's a very defensible position. If you take a deep blue state, I think the way to refine the most effective representative is to ensure that that the candidates from which the voters get to choose best represent the majority coalition of voters in the state of California. In California, that's two Democrats. And I would suggest that's the right thing. If we were to, to falsely manipulate the choice that California voters would get simply to affirm and enable the status of a party organization, then we're suggesting that California voters necessarily have to choose between an R and a D. And and I understand that it feels, it perhaps might feel like a greater, might set some guardrails by ensuring a minority party has a position of equity. But I would suggest in a community that is tilted so far in one direction, perhaps the greater value to the voters would be to give them two candidates from the same party to choose from. Good. So here's an idea for you. If we trust 16-year-olds to be licensed drivers, why shouldn't we trust them to be voters? <laughs> How about starting with a four-year experiment to have them vote in school board elections? Maybe we should raise the age of the driver's license in the state of Florida, and that's the way we could. <laughs> we could say that about serving in the military and drinking beer. Patrick, you're, Pat, so Patrick's the leader of the future forum. Why don't you, yeah. as the first Gen Xer elected to Congress, why don't you do this in defense of 16 years? Millennial, David. I'm a millennial, not a Gen Xer. Come on, man. 
Okay, well, whichever one it is. <laughs> uh, look, there's all sorts of hypocrisies, right? You can, you know, serve in war, uh, you, uh, but you can't drink. Voting, you know, there's so many uh, things, Carol. It's, it's a great question. I'm certainly in the camp of getting more people involved in public service earlier in their life. Whether anybody on this Zoom ever wants to run for office or, or not, getting involved somehow in a campaign it is a great learning experience. So I definitely support it in, in, in many ways that, that people learn about their government. You learn about yourself, you learn about your government, you learn about your locally elected officials. So putting an age on it, you know, look, I think I'll probably stick with 18 for now, but getting people involved in, in the campaign process sooner is definitely better. Was there another part to that question, Carol? Was there a school board? He was suggesting we could do an experiment by having yeah. a vote for school board. That's, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> that's, yeah, cool idea. Then a related question, um, what kind of reaction do you get from young people at universities for your proposal to have a party founded on values and problem solving? How do they see the problems of partisanship or do they, do they buy into this notion of values and problem solving? That's a great question. Thank you for that. And, and this is just a, a back of the napkin assessment from our own engagement. I think it, where generations passed you might have seen younger voters, college voters emerge with a strong ideological conviction. What we are seeing now is a distrust of the two major parties. That seems to be the prevailing sentiment. And we're also seeing it within voter registration numbers that are publicly available from our supervisors of election. We know that nearly 40% of newly registered voters in Florida are choosing to reject the two major parties and instead choose an independent, no party affiliation independence or perhaps a, a minor party vote. And I think going to this question of how do we honor that sentiment among new and, and younger voters, we have to win elections. When people register to vote, including most people when they, they're registering as a young voter, 18, 19, or just out of college, on paper, they're presented with choices in equity, right? Am I going to register as an R, a D, or an independent, or a minor party? At that moment, that affiliation each choice is an equitable choice. There's no one greater than the other. And as a result, in that moment, the way voters behave is roughly a third, a third, a third. But on the first Tuesday of November, because of all of the encumbrances that have been put in place of new parties and independent candidates emerging, there's not a choice in equity in most November elections, which is why then we perform roughly 50-50. We don't see the third, the third, the third performance in our elections because there aren't equitable candidates that have been propped up by major party infrastructure, by major party donors, and by the media that follows the viability argument. That's where the independent movement needs to get to next to reward this energy we're seeing among younger voters and college age voters. Yeah. And, and I would add what, what I think is arguably driving some of that frustration with the two big parties uh, is a lack of progress, right? Like what you said, Carol, it, it, people aren't seeing results. And this generation in particular, millennials and Gen Z are growing up ever more so at, at a time of instant gratification, right? Everything we've ever wanted is at our fingerprints, right? We're, we're, uh, we're not sending letters back and forth. We're, we're sending emails, but we're chatting. It's instant. You want research, you, you Google it. It's at your fingertips, food, Uber Eats, you want to ride, you get Uber. Everything we do uh, is so quick. But we look at, at Tallahassee, we look at Washington, D.C., 
and we're arguing over the same issues for 10 years. It's ridiculous. Nothing gets done. There's some common sense things that have to get done. You look at our roads, right? You look at an improvements in, in, uh, in the schooling, et cetera. Nothing's changing. So you add that up and, and I think people are frustrated and rightfully so. That groundswell hopefully leads to some action and people that are willing to solve problems and solve the problems and not get so hung up on these partisan issues that are preventing any progress. Did you encourage any of those young people to run for office when you went around to all the university campuses? We do. I mean, I do anyway. I don't want to speak for David. I, I think it's a great experience. As I mentioned a second ago, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about your community. There's, there's so many you know, pros to it. You know, as someone told me when I was thinking of running, what's the worst thing that happens? You lose. So what? You know, that's it. You lose an election. You move on. You're now stronger because of it. You're probably better at public speaking. Uh, you're more confident in yourself. You learned a lot about a lot of issues. Uh, you learned a lot about people and interpersonal relationships, who to trust, you know, not only in your staff, but as you're going around talking to people, who's really going to volunteer for you, et cetera. So all in all, I think it's a great experience and more people should do it. Yeah, I think that I think it is too, and we should be great. All right, so here's a question. I think it's just for you, David. Um, do you believe President Biden's approach for, to unity is a value-driven policy? I do. Uh, yeah, it, look, it, cert- it certainly is. I would say, and I have great respect for Joe Biden. I, I don't mean this as a criticism. I mean this from my experience in Washington. I worked with my predecessor in office who had been there for 43 years and was there kind of the whole time Joe Biden was. And there are a few members of that class, if you will, uh, that generational class who have been there for decades upon decades upon decades. And, and their, their DNA is a, is a fascinating thing to examine. There is a natural collegiality that doesn't exist today in newly elected members because they came of age politically in a different era. Do you think of the Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill era? I do think that's in Joe Biden's DNA. I also think that there is a rigidity that sets in perhaps once you've been doing something for 30 or 40 years that kind of pushes aside some of the, the newer thought, right? That's true in any walk of life, in any industry, in any profession, education or finance or law you're always wrestling between the viewpoints that might be different generationally. So I think within Biden's DNA, the unity theme is real. And I think he will, he will pursue it in practice. You know, Biden's got to wrestle with unity within his own ranks as well. I mean, just as much as Republicans and some are saying, Hey, you know, we want to see greater unity from Biden setting aside the, the authenticity of the Republican conviction on that. We're also, Joe Biden's also pulled by the newer generation of progressives in his own party saying, hey, we're the ones who helped get you to the White House. Republicans didn't help get you to the White House. We're the ones you need to be working with. All of those tensions were envisioned by our very founders when they created kind of this free system of American politics. So I say all that because I I believe his intent is real. I believe he's the right president for this moment. I think it's remarkable coming out of four years of incredible divisiveness that we have a president who didn't really run on a hard ideological platform. He largely ignored it to the chagrin of some Democrats even, but he ran on this kind of unifying message. Can he pull it off? Look, if he's going to reach across the aisle, Republicans have to meet him halfway. And it's a fair question whether how far Joe Biden's going to reach. And it's a fair question how far Republicans are going to reach as well. I'd say to the theme Patrick and I often talk about, 
this is why we need reforms. We need a system that rewards them reaching across the aisle. Right now, Joe Biden's working within a system where the reward mechanism for reaching across the aisle really just isn't there electorally. So here's a, another question about nonpartisan races. Nonpartisan races, particularly municipal ones and special districts are becoming increasingly partisan. So we're going the other direction. What are your thoughts on this? Sure, I mean, I, to me, it speaks to some of the sort of other issues we have, particularly the money and, and the media component that have realized that if you can get 100% of one group to show up, that you can likely win an election instead of getting a you know 5% of that group and 20% of that group and getting this sort of hodgepodge. Oftentimes it's better to just go get a whole group. And if you turn it partisan, you can honestly corner people, but you can start to draw those lines in the sand and, and figure out the best way to sort of maneuver for politics. Because like anybody, you get into it and you say, I don't want to be partisan. I want to get things done. I want to solve problems. And then you start running and you say, well, I want to win, right? I'm, I'm doing this to win. I'm not doing it for fun. So whatever level you're running at and whatever the particular rules are, you're going to play by those rules to try to win. And sometimes that's what you're seeing happen is people are intentionally making it partisan. And I've seen it in some mayor's races here locally in South Florida that have historically been nonpartisan. It's been all about local issues. But now all of a sudden it's about Trump or it's about Biden or it's about climate change or not climate change or issues that used to be more fact-based are all of a sudden falling on these political lines. And again, that goes back, I think, to you know some of the, these media outlets that we were talking about earlier that have found a way to make money by putting people in different buckets. And the more different sets of facts we have out there, the tougher it's going to be to rein that in. Carol, if I could also add a, a slight campaign finance element to this, because as, as free spending has dominated American politics, I think actors, I won't call them bad actors, but knowledgeable actors have realized that a lot of seats, not just at the federal level, now state, now local, are just commodities that largely can be bought and sold by people with enough moneyed interest in controlling that seat. Consider that in the state of Florida this last cycle, there were state Senate seats uh, that cost well over $10 million aside. That would have been unheard of 20 years ago. A congressional seat wouldn't have uh, cost that much. And as the money is largely unregulated now, it is easy to see where interested parties can say, look, I can go to the county commission level and spend $2 million to get behind a candidate and run the type of messaging that works, the negative partisanship that voters are now accustomed to, and we can begin to pick up seats even at the municipal level. We know negative partisanship, as Patrick said earlier, is the most effective messaging tool of any candidate in any race. And provided sufficient resources to go on the air or put that message in your mailbox, that's what you're going to see reinforced. Question about redistricting, which is coming up in Florida. What are real strategies to get legislation for electorally competitive and representative districts through a state legislature that has a vested interest in the current system? Go ahead, David. <laughs> no, he's on this. So. Yeah, look, it, this is one of the most encouraging conversations probably of the night for democracy reform advocates. In, in many states, though not all, and I shouldn't say many, let's say in about half the states, voters can really initiate a change in their state constitutions. And that's true in Florida. When we saw the Fair District Amendments pass maybe four years ago, it re voters said, we want to require geography as a condition of drawing district lines. Now, 
Now, the reality of that is our delegation got more partisan, not less. It actually invalidated districts like mine, like Patrick's, like Gwen Graham's and others. We lost kind of the moderates within the congressional delegation. But voters drove that move towards geography. It cost a lot of money. It cost a lot of organization. Legal Women Voters got very involved in organization. In the, in the primary initiatives of this past cycle, there were, I believe, about $5 million at least among the advocates who said, let's try to push this. But voters in Florida can take that within their control and through the signature process, get it on the ballot to get it approved. And the legislature, Republicans and Democrats, don't have a, a role in that. Other than what you often see in states where voters succeed in doing this, the legislature often sues. They go to court to sue to invalidate the will of the voters. And, and the last thing I would add to this, because I know your question mentioned electoral competitiveness, and this is something that I, I'm really intrigued by. We, we get to decide what fair means as we draw lines, right? And, and we grow up seeing these squiggly gerrymandered lines and we think squiggly lines are unfair. Everything should be compact. And so Florida voters said geography should be the test. As I mentioned, geography made us more partisan than our representation, not less. I like the idea of writing into the constitution electoral competitiveness as one of the factors to include geography for how we draw district lines. You would immediately confront some protected voting rights act protections for minority communities, and certainly those would have to be adhered to. But to at least inject the element of electoral competitiveness, I think we could begin to change the map in Florida and in states across the country. On this issue of, of uh, redistricting that we've been talking about, what, you know, what can we as citizens do? Do we have anything that we can do to try to make sure that these districts, when the legislature's redoing these districts, that they meet the requirements of Fair Districts Florida that are in our Constitution? Absolutely. I'd say starting off, hopefully everyone did a census or their, their family did a census. That's that's a good start. Voting in all elections, not just you know presidential voting in midterm elections. And now that those sort of the last election just passed and we finished the census, it's now staying active with your state legislature and ensuring that they know you have a voice. There's a lot of groups already formed that are all about fair districts, drawing, you know, more fair lines, more fair districts. It's important, I think, that people get in touch with these groups and start to learn what they're doing, sign up um, with them so they can start to reach out to their representatives and make their voice heard. There are going to be challenges for those that can support and volunteer with any of these legal challenges are going to come up, as David just mentioned, in the next you know couple of months, years. Be ready to help out because it's not over on day one. It's going to drag out for a long time. So be ready to participate and, and educate uh, your family members, your friends, your coworkers, colleagues at school, whatever it is uh, about what's going on. Yeah, an important procedural piece here. You know, in Arizona, for instance, and other states, they went to independent districting commissions and the maps are the maps. In Florida, we passed fair districts that set the rules for how the lines have to be drawn, but the legislature still gets to draw the lines. And that's where, as Patrick said, they will. those lines will be challenged in court because Republicans control Tallahassee and they will take this as close to the edge as they believe they can get within the fair district's language. And many will ultimately suggest that Republicans cross the line and that's where you'll see the litigation begin. 
So getting back to sort of Congress, um, someone asked this is, question is, is for you, Representative Jolly. What is the reward system that will encourage elected members of, to reach across the aisle? Uh, you know, Patrick often says, if we could fix one of these things, the others begin to get easier. But I, I look at just two or three things that could immediately change it. Open primaries, competitive districts, and public financing of campaigns. You immediately would have more competitive elections, and the incentive structure for behavior among members of Congress would be radically different. Patrick and I served, and, and we knew as we took votes ourselves, we knew the consequence of a vote we took because we could draw the line from that vote, that yay or nay vote on the House floor, immediately to our party primary voters in the next election. That was the only threat of accountability we knew we would face. And so as I took a position as a Republican on issues like marriage equality and defense of climate change and campaign finance reform, gun reform, I, I felt the pull of that thread to my Republican primary voters and nobody else. So if we could enact some of these democracy reform provisions, open up primaries so now the reward mechanism is, is available with a greater constituency, create ungerrymandered districts, public financing of campaigns where your own fate's not tied to the hyperpartisan money. That's how we change the behavior and the incentive structure for members of Congress. This is a question. Please comment on the efforts of known labels and their support for the Problem Solvers Caucus, which helped pass the latest COVID relief. What is the No Labels group? It's, it's a great group. It's a group I was a proud member of, proud supporter of, that is trying to bring uh, folks together to agree on issues. And, and the intent is that let's find some issues and topics, for example, infrastructure, maybe it's COVID relief that we can agree on. And then from there, build some trust, build some relationships and grow out to some of the more tougher issues. Most people agree it's some of the social issues that really divide us. So uh, No Labels uh, has continued to grow in the Congress. I was a proud member of it, but I, I will admit I was, I was very disappointed at times because, you know, in these closed room meetings, people are, are, you know, shaking hands and hugging and talking about these great big ideas. And when it comes to a vote, most people fall into their political corners and they come up with some creative excuse of why they didn't vote for that bipartisan bill when hours before they were talking about why it's probably a good thing. So that happens with both parties uh, continually. They tend to fall more in line with the partisanship. Uh, and then that's exactly what Dave and I are talking about, right? We've had these closed room conversations with, with members of Congress and it's almost uh, a game to them, uh, right? Because they care more about their reelection and their party than they do than really solving problems of our country that they know are right. So good in theory and uh, practicality, I wouldn't say it's strong enough, powerful enough to move enough members of Congress at the same time on the same vote. So we need some of these structural issues that you guys are talking about to really do that. Here's a question. Can reconciliation be used to pass legislation to counter the negative effects of the Citizen United decisions? <laughs> I wish. It cannot. No. Reconciliation is a budget tool that can only be used technically three times a year, but it really is limited to two, almost arguably one. It has to specifically address tax and revenue provisions. So the way, for instance, the Affordable Care Act was able to move under reconciliation was related to the tax provisions and the revenue provisions. Uh, similarly, as you see, the Senate contemplate COVID relief and other other parts of 
the Biden agenda, moving that under reconciliation, it would have to be tied very specifically to the tax and revenue provisions. It can't be used to just create a 51 majority threshold in the Senate on other policy or campaign finance reform related provisions. Do you see any hope for for the non-reconciliation driven legislation to deal with, with Citizens United? So Citizens United would require a federal court to overturn it. And so that goes to finding a sympathetic federal judge. And ultimately, then we know it would get tested before a Supreme Court, which now presumably is tilted so far to the right that it would reinforce Citizens United. But what Patrick and I often talk about is, you know, there is so much you could do in the campaign finance space that can be done legislatively if the political will is there and it doesn't require touching Citizens United. Citizens United said unlimited outside corporate union money, so forth. But we could impose by statute stricter limitations on the fundraising of elected officials and candidates. We could impose a a shorter timeline. We could create thresholds on how money could be spent. There are a number of statutory provisions that could be passed right now, including public financing of campaigns, if there was the political will. None of that requires going to the court to overturn Citizens United. So do you see any any possibility of that legislation passing? No, unfortunately not. not. Not until, look, an incredible scandal could create enough urgency that we see movement in Washington. I, Patrick might have a different opinion. I would agree. Most elected officials don't like the fundraising aspect of it, don't like the money, ends up taking a lot of their time. It's not why they got into politics, most likely. But it's, you know, uh, been around for a long time and will probably continue to be. Uh, The Citizens United piece will take a massively different composition in the Congress and Senate or different court, unfortunately, or as David said, a scandal, uh, most likely to, to get that political will up where the court felt it was necessary or, or, or uh, they were capable of returning it. You know, one of the things with the money, we all know, you know, how bad it is and how, you know, corrupting it can be. One of the things that, that I always talk about, it's important to note uh, beyond all of that is just the amount of time it takes for, from members of Congress to do their job, right? It was anywhere between 20 to 40 plus hours a week for most members of Congress on the phone begging for money, right? You're, how can you possibly focus on the policy issues, on really understanding maybe a new issue that you're not an expert on, uh, getting to know your, your constituents better, right? whatever it might be, when you're spending that much time raising money, begging for funds just to get reelected, it's nonstop in the House. It, it, it's a major problem. And as David said, there are things that the House itself can do to restrict either the amount of money and or the amount of time spent doing that. Uh, and that's something that should definitely be addressed. Somebody asked the question about how would it be possible to finance campaigns publicly? How would that work? Well, if you take the presidential campaign fund, for instance, historically, taxpayers could elect from their own tax returns to direct three or five or ten dollars towards a presidential campaign. You essentially would create a system in which taxpayers fund a a public campaign system that then has very low thresholds compared to what we currently consider on that public financing. And we used to have a a system where there were matching dollars, particularly for presidential candidates, but those candidates had to agree to a limitation on non-federal funds, the amount they would spend. And in the last 12 to 16 years, 
because the amount of money available privately is so great, you see presidents forego, presidential candidates forego the public matching because they don't want the rules. Uh, but we could completely move to that situation. We also could, a public financing campaign structure could get very creative. There are models around the world that are very different. Um, some European models don't allow any advertising on television. That immediately drives out the major cost factor of any campaign, paid television. It allows mailers, it allows social media, so forth, but no TV. But the one I'm most intrigued about in the United States is we spend, I think, about $500 million a year on public television. You could, if you had the, the appropriate qualification procedures, you could say, look, in every federal race starting 20 days out or 30 days out, qualified candidates get five minutes a night on public television. Taxpayers are currently paying for that platform. And we're going to have candidate hour starting 30 days before a federal election where you can learn about the candidates that are running in your area. And the programming is totally up to that candidate, what message they want to get out to you on a publicly financed platform. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, what's what the cost of democracy, right? At what point uh, do we want to say, this is a good use of taxpayer dollars to fund a more functioning democracy? <laughs> you know, and if you start think about how the billions of dollars that are being wasted now, filling up our airways with, with, with nonsense, uh, the amount of misinformation, et cetera, that's out there. You know, if you really worked hard to design a worse system than we have, it would be really tough, right? I mean, it is so broken right now. I would have no problem putting, you know, and I think a lot of taxpayers at a certain point would say, you know what, put a small piece of my tax dollars to, to fund the candidates. Let's have the forums, let's have the town halls, let's have an honest debate with, with some candidates that really care about democracy and solving problems. Yeah. Another Congress question. The Senate filibuster is historically tied to the Jim Crow movement. Isn't it a tool to undercut majority rule? You need to get rid of the filibuster or not? Go for it, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, this one, I, you know, of course, gets debated back and forth. And it, it seems to depend who's in power and on how they, uh, they feel about it. There's all sorts of hypocritical comments from Senate leaders through the years, uh, right, on their, on their stance of this one. So... <laughs> You know, the, the, the Senate, it was intended to be a very deliberate body, right? The House, of course, every two years, new members of Congress, new energy, new ideas. Uh, the Senate meant to be very deliberative. And, and our founders did design a, a very intentional process that if legislation made it through the House and then the Senate and this body that's meant to, to really deliberate issues, then to the you know, president's desk to get signed and then up was upheld in the Supreme Court that that was legislation that was truly meant to last and what was right for the people. So by having these tools and mechanisms that really can you know, make it more complicated, it, it, it does ensure in some ways that the legislation is really meant to last. Now, you could argue that with you know, a lot of more recent activities in the, in the past, but when used appropriately, uh, I think it, it can help bring, you know, uh, hopefully some more compromise when used as a threat, uh, but it, it can certainly be overused and just block all progress. Another, another suggestion from our uh, listeners, what about a four-year term in the House instead of two, so you didn't have to run for re-election all the time? Would that help anything? Look, it's it's a great solution, and I think I'm I'm probably speaking for Patrick because I've heard him say it. It certainly would allow members to work more on policy than having to fundraise for every two year cycle. You know, I I think 
consider how the how the founders designed our system and and then think about whether that could be better accomplished with four-year terms in, in our modern republic or not. The idea of the House of Representatives was to have a body as close to the American communities as possible. It's a body that you can only be elevated to by the popular vote of your community. Every other federal office, you you never have to be elected, right? You can you can ascend to the presidency without having been elected president. You can ascend to the vice president without having ever been elected vice president. You can be appointed to the United States Senate, appointed a cabinet officer, appointed a, a seat on the Supreme Court, but there are no appointments to the House of Representatives. It is intended to be the direct tie to, to American democracy, if you will. And so that is why we see remarkable turnover, why we can see the pendulum swing so far in a House election, but the Senate just barely moves because only a third of the senators are up because of the way the six-year terms are staggered with a third every two years. I think there's, there's benefits and there's drawbacks to lengthening the term of House members, and I think you can make a strong case either way. So here's a question directed to you, David Jolly. Why might you run for governor uh, as an independent rather than a SAM, SAM candidate? That way, if you win, you would establish them as a party that win elections. A vote for a SAM candidate wouldn't be a wasted vote. What is a SAM candidate? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and thank you for that. So the Serve America movement is a political organization that I have the opportunity to serve as its chair. We are a political party in New York and in Connecticut. We are a coalition, if you will, in states like Florida and Texas and Iowa and elsewhere on a pathway to party status. And I very well might run as a SAM candidate. You can you can begin a political party in Florida with three signatures and filing bylaws. We could do that tonight. But the way ballot access laws work, it doesn't get you any closer to ballot access. You still need, you know, 100,000 signatures, give or take, and you need a, a significant amount of financial resources. In other states, it's the opposite. You can't become a party until you have candidates who run and pass a certain threshold. In New York, it was 50,000 votes. Now it's 120,000 votes. And as an independent, if you pass that threshold as a candidate, you could then get to designate a party. So in Florida, look, I, my own political future, I'll make a decision about whether or not to run for governor later this year. It would be as either no party affiliate or affiliated with what would be a newly registered SAM party in the state. So you have um, one, you have some a fan club out there, guys. Are you fine fellows available to run for governor, lieutenant governor as a ticket with a coin flip determining who gets to be governors? <laughs> well, we almost did. Look, we, Patrick, tell the story and tell some of the challenges we ran into because it speaks to the narrative that there's this hunger for this appetite for kind of consensus and unity, but the challenges are very real when you start down that road. Share some, Patrick, with what that was like. Yeah, um, and thank you for um, whomever said that. Dave and I get really close to doing it. We, uh, you know, we, we are very passionate, obviously, about these issues. We're very pro uh, passionate about uh, improving democracy. Whomever the face is, it does, we don't care that it's us, right? We just know we want it to be better. And uh, we were asked after the 2016 losses to consider running for governor and thought about it. And so we started this like kind of listening campaign and sort of calling some of our friends and supporters that were Republicans and Democrats that we knew were frustrated with the way things were going and the way the election outcome of 2016 was. And everyone on the surface, oh, yeah, I'll support you. I'd love to volunteer and I'll write you a check and I'll help you out. 
So we started, you know, getting down to it. And two real obvious things happened. Number one, when we polled, we realized that the general election was was very feasible, that a Republican and Democrat coming together could probably win in Florida and a general, but the primary would be very challenging. So whether it was David or myself, you know, as a Republican or a Democrat, for, for various reasons, we would both have uh, a tough time winning those, those primaries. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the primary system. That's 12% of the electoral actually showing up to vote. Were we going to lie and say we weren't going to run with the party in the person from another party? Or just say, no, I'm running as a Democrat. And then, you know, uh, surprise, right after you win your primary, then you put a Republican on the ballot with you and piss everyone off, right? So that that made it tricky in the primary. And then what we found, back to the money thing, which David and I hate, but you need it to run for office. When we got serious about doing it, all of a sudden, all the people that said they were going to write these checks to help us said, well, wait a minute. I don't know. You know, there's this other person running. I might want to help them. And can you really win? And then everyone got a little bit soft on it. So then you start looking at it and, and know that you got to raise tens of millions of dollars, probably 50 million plus. If you don't have a lot of that circled and accounted for, you know, you're not going to get off the ground. So it's the unfortunate reality of the system. But uh, if anything motivated us to write this book and be more passionate about solving these problems. So maybe perhaps someone else down the road will consider doing it. Yeah. Hey, Carol, if I could add something about about this, about my consideration of running for governor, because all these issues Patrick and I work through are, are kind of coming back into play. And I just had this conversation with somebody who called me and said, you know, one or both of the two major parties would consider suing you if you named anybody but an independent to be your running mate. Because word had gotten out that I would consider naming a running mate that might be affiliated with one of the two major parties. And what it has created is a situation where if I were to try to announce a lieutenant governor running mate early as a candidate, I might not actually be able to officially ask them to run on the ticket. It might have to be a pledge to name that person to the vacant LG office if I was elected. And I say that because as silly and as crazy as that sounds, it is all a function of these these hurdles that have been put in place in cooperation of the two major parties to try to mute out independent runs and new parties. Patrick and I, when we were considering running and they said, you're gonna get sued by the Republicans and Democrats because they're gonna say, you're not allowed to do this. Our response was great, sue us. It'll be exactly the press that we want for our ticket because it'll show the Republican and Democratic parties for what they are in Tallahassee. But the, re- the challenges are very real. And it is why we kind of highlight in this book how the two major parties have put these hurdles in place to independent politics. Great. So here's, here's a good softball question on you as we kind of clo- come to a close here. Can you think of heroes in history who you think are examples of the kind of moral courage that we need more of now? Well, Lincoln certainly comes to mind. MLK. Uh, you know, certainly comes to mind. Rosa Parks, right? People that have stood up through history for for what they believed in, uh, obviously had a strong moral core, and and unfortunately, some were assassinated because of it. But you look back in history, and uh, they're the ones that really made a difference. David, I, I would agree with Patrick, and simply say we often see it from the citizenry more than our electeds, right? The the Rosa Parks, Sojourner Truth, MLK, uh, Margaret Mead. 
that those were citizens who I think Margaret Mead famously said, never underestimate what a small group of informed, passionate citizens can accomplish. They're the only ones who have really ever changed the world. Perhaps our elected leaders, when they're entrusted with the confidence of those informed, passionate citizens, have the courage then to make the hard decisions. I would say among our elected leaders, though, look, we're all fallible, right? But look for the leaders who you recognize are willing to make decisions based on a conviction of the direction we need to go, not on where they believe public opinion necessarily is. Some leaders follow public opinion, some try to lead it in the direction and look at where they lead it. I, I was reading recently about FDR and he is often thought of as this progressive ideologue. And Jonathan Alter wrote a book um, maybe 10 years ago. In fact, it was, I did a podcast with him. It's actually a book on Joe Biden's desk, the biography of FDR. But what I was taken by is the fact that when, when FDR arrived in office amidst a, an economy and a country and a world in crisis, he wasn't the one leading progressive on um, progressive solutions. He said, let's try something. And if it doesn't work, let's try something else. And if it doesn't work, let's try something else. He was untethered at the time to what ultimately led him to what is now considered very progressive politics. But it was leadership that in that moment said, I don't care where the ideological answers are. We just need answers and let's try them. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, let's retool and try something else. And Carol, I'll jump in just with, you know, sort of current events. David and I have a friend named Adam Kissinger uh, in Congress now. He's in uh, Illinois. And and he stood up, you know, as a Republican uh, to his caucus in Congress and said, the Republican Party of Donald Trump is not doing us any favors. And, and you know, basically saying we need to, to regroup as a party. That takes courage, right? As easy as it is for me as a Democrat to say, yeah, that's so obvious to do that. When you're sitting there in Congress and all your friends and all your committees and all your fundraising and all your staff might not feel like that, that, that is courageous. Liz Cheney, uh, you could argue what she just did, right? Standing up to, to, in some ways is courageous. Kevin McCarthy is not courageous, right? That would be the opposite of courage. David and I know him for, you know, uh, probably over a decade now. Uh, he is not a fan of Donald Trump. That is not his politics historically, but miraculously, right? He's a big fan. You know, that, that, that's sort of the opposite of courage. And that's unfortunately becoming the norm these days. Well, perhaps you could also mention some of the state officials during the uh, post-election period of time. They certainly stood up for their state of both parties. But Well, on, on behalf of uh, informed, passionate citizenry that make up uh, Village Square in Tallahassee, uh, we want to thank you both for your continued efforts in this regard for your book, for potentially your candidacy, uh, David, in Florida. And we really uh, appreciate, especially your coming with us tonight to, uh, to talk about your ideas and answer some of our questions. It was really, was really great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Carol. Thank you all. And with that, we, uh, we end this portion of uh, Village Square. Thanks to all of you for joining us. And uh, hopefully we have some good ideas and we'll be able to carry forward some of these things as we move, move forward into the future. Thank you very much. Hello again. It's Vanessa, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this informative and thought-provoking program. We offer our deepest gratitude to Representatives Jolly and Murphy for going against the grain and working together across the aisle to try to fix the root causes of our political gridlock. And of course, we also thank them for spending this time with us. 
So now, confession time. And I think I'll go hide under the table after I say this. I used to be one of those people who couldn't understand why some people would, quote, waste their vote on a candidate who didn't have a chance of winning. At the same time, I get so annoyed at Band-Aid solutions and often preach that we need to look at the big picture, the long term, instead of just what's in front of us today. So I guess it's time for me to take my own advice and think more about the big picture of how to maintain our democracy, because clearly the path we're on needs some work. As I listen to this program, and also the Reunited States film that our last two episodes were based off of, I really started to see the value of allowing a third force in our political systems and reducing the power of the two major parties that effectively keep third parties out and that often benefit from us being at odds with each other. So I was sitting there working on this episode, exploring the idea of voting third party or independent, even if there's another candidate whose values I agree with more, just when Representative Jolly made that fantastic point that will allow me to justify all this to myself in the future, when he said that it's not an ideological shift to moderate that we need, but rather the shift is about creating solutions that will allow our government to work better. This makes total sense to me, and it demonstrates why third-party votes are actually in line with what I value most. I agree that we will come to better solutions if we bring people with diverse viewpoints to the table. And I agree that the most important thing right now is getting our government working well again. And if we do that, I believe the rest will fall in place, that the people will rise to the occasion once the accountability structure is fixed. And yes, I will admit that I still have some fear about what could happen if lots of people from one side primarily shift to third-party votes. But as I even say that word fear, I'm thinking about how damaging fear alone often is to making progress. So clearly, I'm still processing all this and thinking hard about my future choices which is why I love, love, love the list of action steps that Representative Murphy shared with us about two-thirds of the way through the program. While I love soaking up the information in these programs, it's just as important to find out what else we can do after we walk away. We all have a role to play, and regardless of our ideological beliefs, we can all join the citizens' movement to get our democracy working again. And that's really what this whole season is about, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America. If you missed the first program of the season, The Reunited States, you can now find it in the two podcast episodes right before this one. And coming up soon, another program you won't want to miss is Let Friendship Redeem the Republic, where we'll get to meet pairs of friends who not only manage their disagreements, but they embrace them. And soon, we'll also be airing a God Squad episode about cancel culture. To hear these programs on Village Squarecast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. Or if you'd like to participate in our live Zoom events, you can find all the details at villagesquare.us. That's also where you can sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything that's happening at the Village Square. We'd be so grateful if you'd drop us a review in Apple Podcasts. We appreciate you listening to A Divided Union. 
Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast.